Our gracious Heavenly Father, oh Lord, what a wonderful reminder right now that it won't be long. I think about the words of Paul in Romans 8, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us in Christ in the future. And that's how the creation anxiously longs for the revealing of the sons of God, for all things to be made new, for all things to once again go back to the way that they were in the beginning before sin came into the world. We long for a new heavens and a new earth. And we long more than anything else to see our Savior, to behold Christ, no longer dimly, but perfectly. Father, I I pray that you would this morning move in our hearts and evoke in us a greater adoration for Christ, a greater desire to see him exalted in our lives, in the lives of our families, in the lives of our communities, in our country, all over the world. Father, what an opportunity we have right now as your people. What an opportunity. You are not surprised by anything that's taken place in this world at all. And Lord, we need to take the same mindset and remember the fact that we have a a wonderful opportunity to make much of Jesus during this time. Not only in the sharing of the message of the gospel, which is our primary, Lord, mission, but even living out the implications of the gospel in our attitudes, beginning with our hearts, in the way that we speak to one another, in the way that we, Lord, make decisions. Lord, help us to be people who are more than anything committed to exalting and making much of your Son, Jesus. You, the Father, are glorified when your Son is exalted in the power of your Spirit at this time of redemptive history. Lord, help us to live that out. And Father, may this morning, as we look at Mark chapter 11, as we're reminded of the authority of Christ, may we be moved all the more to be people who are driven to proclaim Jesus to a a lost and hopeless world. Help us to have compassion for the lost. Help us, Lord, to be people who remember that at one point in time, we were there and you were gracious to us. Help us more than anything to desire that others would come to know you. Lord, be with us in your word this morning. Help us to be doers of your word and not merely hearers who are self-deceived. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, turning your Bibles to Mark 11, Mark 11, verses 27 through 33 is our text for this morning. Mark 11, verses 27 through 33. I've been walking through this wonderful gospel of Mark for a couple of years now, and we're here in these chapters, chapters 11 through 16 of Mark, which are really the, the last um, week of the Lord's life, Passion Week. Chapters 11 through 16 cover that period of time. And we're now in chapter 11 of Mark, verses 27 through 33. And if you're able to stand with me, please stand for the reading of God's Word, okay? Mark chapter 11, verses 27 through 33. Hear the Word of the Lord. They came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and began saying to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, and you answer me. And then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. They began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from men? They were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. The title of this morning's message is very consistent with, I think, the the theme of authority here in this particular passage. And it is this, Jesus rules. Amen? Jesus rules. It's interesting right now how power and authority, if you've noticed, are very much issues at play in our country. 
In fact, this week we witnessed a transfer of power and authority from one political party to another in our country here in the States. And already we've been seeing decisions being made, policies being implemented, based upon that transfer of power and authority. And regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum, I think it's important to remember the difference between power and authority. Power is might, and authority is right. Power refers to one's might or one's ability to do something. Authority refers to one's right to exercise and wield that power. And as we observe everything that's taking place, especially in our country, what should be so encouraging for us as Christians is that human rulers, past political party and present political party now in power, have limited authority and limited power. There's only one who wields absolute power and absolute authority And what's his name? Jesus. Jesus Christ. There's only one who has unlimited power, might, and unrivaled authority, right, to exercise that power over everything. There's nothing that can thwart the plans of Jesus. Jesus rules. And it's this authority that I think is so central to this particular passage this morning. It's the central theme of, of verses 27 through 33 is the authority of Christ. And this morning we want to consider this unrivaled authority of our Lord Jesus. Now you may recall, again, that this is the final week of our Lord Jesus' earthly ministry, at least before His death. It's Passion Week. When there are literally thousands of pilgrims flocking to Jerusalem in celebration of the Passover. I've already mentioned a few minutes ago that chapters 11 through 16 of Mark focus on this final week of our Lord's life. And in particular, 1127, Mark 1127, our passage this morning, all the way to chapter 12 and verse 40 are when things really begin to heat up all the more in the ministry of our Lord. That uh, section of 1127 through 1240 is filled with, with seven controversies and four interrogations by Jesus' enemies. For almost two chapters, Jesus' enemies are at him. Over and over again, they continue to attack him. They continue to try to undermine his authority. Things are really, really heating up. And the basis of all of these interrogations, and all of these attacks on the part of these enemies, is really, at its core, the authority of Christ in the light of his claims. In the light of the fact that he's claimed to be the the Son of God, that he claims to be the Messiah, and that his core, obviously, is his authority that comes with that. These religious leaders are fighting over and over again to keep their authority. And so again and again, we see this unrivaled authority of Jesus, even as he addresses them in all of these interrogations, all of this questioning that takes place. We're going to see that this morning again. And I want us to look at this passage and focused on the unrivaled authority of Jesus through four movements here. Four movements that show, display the unrivaled authority of Jesus. Okay? The first movement, if you're taking notes, is the premeditated confrontation. We see the premeditated confrontation in verses 27 and 28. Look at verse 27. The text says that they came again to Jerusalem. They came again to Jerusalem. This is his constant destination. We've seen that the Lord and his disciples have been commuting back and forth, going to Bethany, where uh, the home of Martha and Mary, whose brother, whose infamous brother was Lazarus. He's staying there about two miles away from Jerusalem, but he keeps coming back to Jerusalem. On Sunday, he had entered the city for his infamous triumphal entry. And we saw what happened, how anticlimactic that was. And then on Monday, he cursed a fig tree as symbolic of God's judgment upon um, apostate Israel. The apostate Israel of that day. And then he entered the temple and he cleaned house there. He he cleanses the temple. And in an act of great zeal, our Lord Jesus wanted to send the message, This is not the purpose of my father's house. You have made it a robber's den. 
A place for exploitation. Instead of a place of, for heartfelt worship where people can come and worship the one true God. And then Tuesday morning, they saw the fig tree dead. And Jesus taught on the importance of faith. And the ultimate expression we saw last week of faith, which is a life of prayer. Where we're seeking the face of God unhypocritically and knowing that God will answer us. A believing type of prayer. And so they re-enter Jerusalem again on, on Tuesday here. And amazingly, amazingly, Jesus heads right back into the lion's den. Into the temple he heads in there once again for round two, right? I love this. Just as a side note, have you noticed how bold and how courageous our Lord Jesus is? I am so encouraged by one who is gentle and humble in heart, as he said about himself. And yet at the same time, he is bold and courageous. You see, while Jesus was always gracious, always kind, he was the most gracious man that ever walked on the face of this planet. He didn't avoid hard decisions because he was afraid of conflict or uncomfortable situations. He was bold and he was courageous. He didn't go looking for a fight, but in the flow of living life, of ministering, of speaking the truth, he was ready to embrace whatever opposition came as he spoke the truth. I don't know about you, beloved. I want to be that kind of man. I want to be that kind of man. And I hope that you want to be that kind of Christian, that you want to be bold and courageous, that like Christ, we should show compassion But also, like Christ, we should be people of conviction and people of courage. Amen? May God give us the grace to be able to do that. And so this is what what we see in in the life of our Lord right now. He was full of compassion, but he was bold and courageous. And if you notice, verse 27 says that as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. Most likely, again, this is the court of the Gentiles, where Jesus had clean house before. The place is electric by now. There are literally thousands of visiting pilgrims from the known world coming there. It is also a circus, as we uh, saw a couple of weeks ago. Because instead of a place for worship where the Gentiles, the non-Jews, could come and worship the Lord, it had become a marketplace and a place for exploitation. So this is where Jesus goes right back into this again. And given the fact that he had cleansed the temple and done that the previous day, it is most likely that in the aftermath on Monday night of Jesus having done that zealous action of cleansing the temple, that some kind of meeting took place among the Jewish Sanhedrin. The Jewish Sanhedrin was the ruling body of the Jews. Some kind of meeting took place. And the reason I say this is because by Tuesday, here's a premeditated confrontation with the religious leaders of Israel. Look at verse 27. Jesus is confronted by the chief priests and the scribes and the elders who come to him. These individuals represented the three branches of the Jewish Sanhedrin, the ruling government of the Jews. The chief priests were present and past chief priests, the head of the Sanhedrin. The scribes, as you know, were the experts of the law. They were the interpreters, the teachers of the law of Moses. And the elders were the, were the more mature spiritual leaders of Israel. And so this delegation from the Sanhedrin comes to confront our Lord. And the parallel passage of Luke chapter 20 and verse 1 says that they confront him while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. And so here they come. Here's the bold and courageous, greatest evangelist that ever ministered here in this world. He's ministering to the people. And verse 28 says that they began saying to him, by what authority are you doing these things? By what authority are you doing these things? In other words, what is the basis of your actions? What gives you the right to do what you're doing and to teach what you're teaching? What gives you the right They want to know the nature of his authority and the source of his authority. Who sent you to do these things? Who sent you to do these things? This is so deceptive and hypocritical on their part, by the way. Because throughout Jesus' ministry, 
They've been aware of Jesus' claims. They've been aware of, what, of the authority that Jesus has shown. They've been aware of the fact that, that this authority could only come from the one true God. They're aware of this. They don't want the truth here. They're aware of Christ's power and authority, that it's been a, a key theme even for us in the Gospel of Mark. Back in chapter 1, verse 22 of Mark, as he's teaching in the synagogue, they were amazed at his teaching, it says, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Same in chapter 1, verse 27 of Mark. What is this, it says there, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And then in Mark chapter 2 and verse 10, Jesus claims authority not only to heal a paralytic, but also to forgive sins on top of that. And the scribes are sitting there saying, why does, it, why does this man say these things? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They're aware of his authority. They're aware of his power. In Mark chapter 3 verse 15, it says that Jesus gave his disciples authority to cast out demons. Same thing in Mark chapter 6 and verse 7. He gives them authority to cast out demons. And very telling, in Mark chapter 9 and verse 7, when Jesus is transfigured before Peter, James, and John, Mark chapter 9 verse 7 records these words from God the Father about His Son. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. All throughout Mark, in other words. We've seen the the great authority of Jesus displayed over demons, over sickness, over disease, over the physical and natural realm, even over the disciples who upon Jesus calling them and commanding them, follow me, what do they do, beloved? They drop everything to follow Christ. Great authority. When Jesus calls, you obey. And so these guys are not being genuine here. They've been aware of the Lord's claims They've been hounding him throughout the Gospel of Mark because they're threatened by him. And here they are again. How dare Jesus step on our toes? In essence, their questioning conveys, we are the authority around here. Who gave you this authority? We certainly did. Who do you think you are? You see, for these guys, it wasn't about control. It wasn't about care for the people. It was about control. It was about, they, they were power-hungry individuals. That's what they were. They weren't spiritual leaders. You know, there are so many so-called Christian leaders rising up right now and seizing upon the moment, even as we speak, to lead people astray. There are so many so-called Christian leaders today who give the appearance of spirituality on the outside, who give lip service to speaking for the truth, Most of these individuals are are the false teachers right now who are saying, peace, peace, unity, unity, all the while denying what the Word of God says about clearly delineated things. Don't buy into it. There is no peace without truth. There is no unity or love without the truth. Jesus was the the perfect God-man who exuded both grace and truth. He was the most loving individual that ever walked on the face of this planet, and he was utterly committed to the truth. He was the perfect example of that. We need to be about that too, beloved. Be careful. Be careful right now with buying into this. I'm warning you and cautioning you. There are so-called Christian leaders out there who are leading people astray. But like Jesus described these religious leaders back in Mark 7, they are hypocrites. They teach as doctrines the precepts of men. They neglect God's word and focus on man-made traditions. They are blind guides of the blind. Oh, beloved, we need to be careful right now. We need to be so careful. These are not spiritual leaders. And listen, there is hope for these individuals. There is hope, but it comes through repentance and faith and being saved. That God would deliver them from their false teaching and from leading people astray. You know, this last week I was so encouraged and so refreshed to hear Costi Hinn. How many of you are aware of Costi Hinn? Not Benny Hinn. Costi Hinn is Benny Hinn's nephew, who for years... He tells his testimony. He used to travel with Benny Hinn everywhere to do his, his healing, so-called healing um, conferences. 
And he was, you could see Benny Hinn on the videos, catching the people as Benny Hinn so-called would heal people. Kosti Hinn would catch them. And then they would go to these posh hotels and resorts all over the world, spending hundreds and thousands of, of dollars on those things. And then the Lord, he had a collision with Jesus. And the Lord saved Kosti Hinn. And now that man is preaching the gospel. Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, including Costi Hinn, Kempis Hernandez, and any of us, right? So now he's preaching the true gospel. What an amazing, powerful testimony. And now Costi Hinn warns people of the importance of discernment. Discernment. That now more than ever, it is time to walk with discernment. What is discernment? It's the God-given ability to distinguish to separate, to judge between what is good and what is evil. For instance, did you make a judgment this week as we heard the appointment of of a man who pretends to be a woman of a man to assistant health secretary? Did you make a judgment, Christian, on that, that that is wrong and evil and that there is hope for somebody like that, but it's through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ? But did you notice? Did you notice? Now, we would expect those kinds of things. I wasn't shocked by that. I hope you weren't shocked by such an appointment. But I'll tell you this. Discernment, furthermore, teaches us that this is part of a greater agenda. A greater ideological movement. And it's called this, desensitization. Where you begin to see this more and more as the norm, as what is natural. And you, Christian, are in danger of beginning to say things like this. Well, you know, everybody's doing it. This is so prevalent. It's natural. You know, that's normal. You know what? It is normal in a sinfully depraved world. But we should never support it and never agree with it. Right? Ever. Ever. And I hope that you're practicing practicing discernment and making a judgment as you see things like that going down in our culture. And this isn't the first week that that's happened. This has been going on in the whole history of mankind. You and I are called by God to make a judgment on such things. You say, but pastor, I thought we're we're called not not to judge. Says who? Seriously, says who? Usually when somebody says that, usually... They're either twisting scripture to excuse their sin or they have a wrong conception of what true love biblically means. Because true love is always most concerned with the purity of its object, isn't it? Always. You love someone, you want them to be like Christ. You want them to come to Christ. And so we are called to make a a judgment on these things. Listen, the Bible calls us to to reject a type of self-righteous judgmentalism. The book of James deals all with that. There is only one judge and one lawgiver. Who are you to judge your brother, right? He's talking about rejecting a type of self-righteous judgmentalism, a holier-than-thou type of pointing your finger at somebody else, all the while living and seeing yourself. We're certainly called to reject that. But the Bible also calls us to practice discernment. Not only the ability to distinguish between good and evil, but listen, the ability to judge between what is good and what is best. What is beautiful and lovely and pure in the eyes of God. And so listen, as it pertains to the so-called spiritual leaders of today, like those of Jesus' day, we need to again put everything through the grid of God's holy word and submit everything under the lordship of Christ. Isn't that what Jesus did throughout his ministry, by the way? How many times have we not seen in Mark Jesus say such things? It is written. What did Moses say? What did Moses say in the Torah and the law? Over and over again, Jesus to people corrects them by coming back and appealing to God's holy word. It is written. Really, it stands written. Nothing has changed, folks, was Jesus' message to people in his day. You guys are allowing traditions to dictate your decisions. You guys are allowing all of these other things to be the things that are your guiding principles. 
It stands written. My word has not changed. What does it say? Let's get back to the word of God because the Bible reveals the mind and the will of God, right? That's Jesus' message. We need to be doing the same thing, Christians. We need to be doing the same thing in this day and age. Not succumbing to individuals like these. Taking everything through the grid of Scripture. Listen to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. This is a passage you ought to memorize, especially you young people. You hear me, young people? You need to memorize 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 and 22. Ready? But examine everything carefully. Hold fast or cling to that which is good. Abstain from every form or appearance of evil. What a passage. We need to examine everything. We need to test everything. Put everything through the grid of the Word of God. Listen to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God with a capital S. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. He's speaking there of of testing spirits, these demonic spirits who produce false teachers and false prophets. He says, test those individuals. Do they affirm the God-man? Do they affirm the core aspects, the core aspects of theology? And centered in there is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Do they affirm the God-man, His real humanity, His real deity, that He is 100% God and 100% man? I heard two teachers just this week, just small two to three minute clips, men who are out there saying we're spiritual leaders and they deny that Jesus is God. And Christians are just, at least people that I would consider to be Christians, are just drinking the Kool-Aid. Drinking the Kool-Aid. Oh, they're so loving. They're so, these men are just so peaceful. They're always about love. Love wins. Listen to me, that is fake love. That is superficial love, devoid of the truth. Centered on the person and the work of Christ. You to walk with discernment, brothers and sisters. Especially during this time. And so you see, these false teachers of Israel had rejected who Jesus claimed to be. They denied His power and His authority, and yet they boasted of great spirituality. But upon closer examination, they were false teachers. And their premeditated confrontation of Jesus has nothing to do with a genuine concern to know the truth, with a genuine care for people, These guys are simply concerned with their authority not being usurped or undermined. That's all they care about. They're power hungry. And so next we see, secondly, the brilliant counter question. Notice the brilliant counter question in verses 29 through 30. Oh, these phony leaders are probably thinking to themselves, we got him. We got him. He's stuck. He's going to have to answer us And depending on what he answers, we can prosecute Jesus because that's what they want. They have an agenda, and the agenda is to destroy Jesus, to kill Jesus. But as we've seen throughout Mark, the Lord Jesus is never taken off guard, is he? He's never on the defensive. He's never left backpedaling. Notice how he turns the table on them in verse 29. And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, and you answer me. And then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. By answering this way, our Lord is not being evasive. He's not being indifferent to their question. For starters, this type of response was common in rabbinical dialogues where one would often answer a question with a question. But beyond that, Jesus is not responding like this to to blend in with the culture of rabbinical dialogue and all of that. That is not His main purpose. His aim... And asking this is to get to the heart of the matter. Here is the the brilliance of our Lord Jesus shown again. He wants to expose the hypocritical, twisted hearts of these individuals. He wants them to see their sin for themselves. 
That's the aim of his questioning here, of his counter-question. Did you notice the irony here? Here they are, wanting to fight for and reestablish their authority. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You're not going to corner me. I'm going to ask you something, and you're going to answer me. Our Lord's wisdom and sheer brilliance is shown here. He is a, a master surgeon of hearts, isn't he? A master surgeon of hearts through, through diagnostic questions. Our Lord was so skillful at that. But also, Jesus' brilliant response should be a reminder to us, listen, that our Lord, beloved, is always in control. Amen? He's always in control. He's not like us. He's not like me so often this past year, taken off guard by people or events in our country. He's not like us. He's not shocked or surprised by any of it. My wife and I were contemplating this on a date the other day. It's like, wow, tough times, huh? But isn't it amazing to realize the fact that before the foundation of the world, the Lord already knew these things. He's not shocked or surprised by any of it. So if he's allowing us to go through it, he has a purpose, right? Some of that we've begun to understand. Other aspects we'll understand in retrospect. But we can trust his character that he's absolutely in control. And it should comfort us, beloved. That Jesus, as it pertains to those specific trials that you are experiencing this morning, be they of a physical, emotional, or spiritual nature, please be comforted and encouraged by the fact that God is not taken off guard by your trials, by your specific, particular circumstances, by your worries or concerns. He's always in control, and furthermore, He fervently loves you and cares for you. Amen? He cares for you. Our high priest sympathizes with our weaknesses. For he has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, come boldly before him. As we said last week, come boldly before Christ. Come to him, rest in your Savior. He's never taken off guard by the things that we go through. Now, here's his counter question in verse 30. Notice, it's designed to get to the, the heart of their hypocrisy. In verse 30, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? And notice, answer me. An imperative, a command. Jesus demands an answer from them. He's turned the tables on them. Now, at first glance, this, this might seem like a question from left field. Like a question that's got nothing to do with this confrontation. But listen to me. It is calculated. It is a deliberate question by Jesus. It is designed to get them to acknowledge his authority as coming from God, something which they are not wanting to do. How does he do it? By bringing up the ministry of John the Baptist, that popular figure with the Jewish people who had a huge following during his ministry, who many people believed to have been a, a great prophet, one who had been sent from heaven, sent from God. And thus people had acknowledged his authority. People, the, the common folk, protected John the Baptist from the religious leaders during John the Baptist's um, life, ministry. And here's the connection. Here's the connection. If many believed John to have been God sent, then they should have believed John's central message. What was it? John's central message was to point to Jesus as one who came of divine origin. One who was the Messiah. Remember his preaching in the early chapters of John? He, he existed before me. He had a higher, Jesus has a higher rank than I would say John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He would point to Jesus. He must increase and I must decrease. Over and over again, what was Jesus, uh, John the Baptist's message? It was, Jesus is greater than me. He is the Messiah. He's the long-awaited one. Believe in Him. He came to pay for sins. That was His message. And so Jesus... So, so brilliantly saying, tell me about John, guys. What did you think about his ministry? Was it divine or was it human? Was he sent 
from God or was he sent from men? And so his counter question here is designed to expose their sinful heart. He's turned the tables on them. How will they answer? How will they answer? Notice third, the cowardly conversation. The cowardly conversation in verses 31 through the beginning of verse 33. A conversation ensues among them. Verse 31, they began reasoning among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? Verse 32, but shall we say, or better, if we say from men, they were afraid of the people for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Here's the struggle. Here's their tension. On the one hand, if they acknowledge that John was sent from God and all that John ever did was point to them trusting in Jesus Christ, they should have believed in Jesus, but they didn't. They rejected Christ. On the other hand, if they answer honestly, that just as they rejected John, so they reject Jesus, they are fundamentally man-fearers. They are afraid of the people. And by the way, they're not just afraid of, of the Jews, they're afraid of the Romans. Because if there's a, some kind of revolt amongst the Jewish people, guess what happens? The Jews would lose their rights and freedoms with the Roman government. And so they're afraid of not only the Jews, but also of the Romans. And so either way they answer, they're stuck. They're cornered. They're left backpedaling, trying to figure out what to answer. Trying to figure out how to respond. And so how do they answer? What's their final answer? Look at verse 33. Answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. We do not. We don't have an answer for you, Jesus. Obviously, they're full-blown lying with a straight face, right? They're lying with a straight face. You know what they were? These so-called spiritual leaders are cowards. That's what they are. They're cowards. They weren't courageous as spiritual leaders need to be. They lacked spiritual backbone, didn't they? They lacked spiritual backbone. They lacked real conviction. There's a lesson for us here, beloved, once again. If there's something that we need today, brothers and sisters, are people with spiritual backbone. People of courage in the Lord. People of, of conviction. What are convictions? How do you define convictions? Convictions are, are beliefs that you are willing to pay the price for. Convictions are certain. They're unshakable. They're immovable. They are, they are non-negotiable. They are unchanging. They don't fluctuate with the circumstances. They don't fluctuate with the opposition. We need people today of courage and of conviction. And men, men, young men or older men, look at me right now. More than anything else, what we need today and what the church needs today in the power of the Spirit by the grace of God is men of courage and men of conviction. Beginning with us as leaders in this church. Beginning with me amongst the elders. We need to be men who are bold and courageous and are live by conviction. Who don't fluctuate with the circumstances. Who don't shy away from speaking the truth in love. We need men of conviction. We need men who during very uncertain times right now are going to lead their family spiritually in their home. We need men who believe with all of their hearts that especially right now I need to be tuned in to my family, to my marriage, to my children, young or older. If you're a grandparent, that you're tuned in to your kids who are now older and to your grandkids. We need men of conviction. We need men who are going to be able to stand in the gap right now. In a growing pagan culture. An anti-God culture. Where now, no longer are you just to sit around and just agree. But now they want you to support anti-God ideologies. Where are the men who are going to stand in the gap, beloved? May God give us the grace, brothers. 
to stand in the gap and speak forth the truth in the power of the Spirit by the grace of God. Amen? We need men of conviction. We need young people of conviction. Young people, look at me right now. Teens. You're not a teen. You're a young man and you're a young woman. Right now, God is working in your heart and life on one level to make sure that you are genuinely following after Christ. And if you are, God is working in your life through everything that has taken place that you might solidify the beliefs, the things that you claim to believe in from the Word of God. Will you succumb to a culture of multiple ideologies where so many young people are now going after these things, not putting those things through the grid of the Word of God, or will you say, you know what, thus saith the Lord, I'm going to stand right here and I'm not moving. It stands written. What kind of a young person will you be today? In light of where our culture is headed. We need young people of conviction. And you know what? Don't lie to yourself for all of us. As if there's some some neutral ground in the Christian life. These cowardly men were afraid to make a stand upon being pushed by the Lord Jesus. But what they failed to recognize is that in choosing not to submit to Christ and to His rule over their lives, they were submitting to man's. They were fundamentally man-fearers who went after the culture. There's no neutral ground. There's no neutral ground. It's the same for us. You either acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior. You've confessed Him as Lord of your life. You put your trust in Him. You truly believe that that sacrifice 2,000 years ago in real time, in real history, was applicable to you and that Jesus died on that cross to, to pay for your personal sins. Not just the sins of the world, but your personal sins. That He was put on that cross because of you, because of me, because of our sin. You've come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That you believe with all of your heart that He rose again on your behalf. That you might have hope. That it's just a a matter of time, right? Before He returns and you're enjoying Him forever and ever. You either embrace this Christ or you reject Him. There's no neutral ground. You either reject Him and make no mistake about it. This rejection is either active or it is passive. You can actively reject Jesus by just outright denying the fact that he died to pay for your sins. Or you can reject Jesus passively by treating him with indifference. By not being mindful of the Lord in your life. Maybe as you came into this Sunday morning worship service, this is the first time you've actually even heard the word of God this week. Maybe this is the first time when you're actually even thinking about Jesus, thinking about Scripture, thinking about truth. Let me tell you something. If that is the pattern of your life, you have some self-examination to do. Because all of us struggle, right? Spiritual vitality might ebb and flow. We might go through dark valleys and seasons of life. But our pursuit is to be embracing Christ, to be worshiping and serving and obeying Christ, right? And so... Are you passively rejecting Jesus by treating him with indifference? By treating him as an an afterthought, as an option that you take or leave as you please or as convenient to you? There's no middle ground. No middle ground. And these Christ-exalting men were wanting to somehow choose some middle ground, some neutral ground. They were dancing around the issue. They neither believed in John nor in the one whom John pointed to as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They didn't believe in the Lord or in John's ministry. And so notice, fourth, how does Jesus respond to them now? Fourthly, we see the sobering condemnation. Notice the sobering condemnation in the middle of verse 33. Answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. And here it is. And Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is sobering here. 
By their cowardly response, we do not know they had showed their hypocrisy, their outright rejection of John, and the one who was inseparably connected to John, namely Jesus. Masterfully, the Lord Jesus had exposed their hypocrisy, that they were spiritual phonies, that they were like politicians who hypocritically say nice things about their opponents to their face, but then go behind their back, backstab the opposition behind their back. That's what these religious leaders were like. Phonies. Hypocrites, heartless. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me. The religious leaders were at the top of that description. And so if they're not willing to believe in Christ or submit to him, Jesus says, I've got nothing left to say to you. In essence, what he says is, I'm done with you. This particular conversation is over. Boy, you don't ever, 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 ever want to get to the point where God says that to you, right? Ever. You say, well, that will never happen. God is abounding in loving kindness. He's always there for me, even if I live in sin and patterns of sin. Listen to me. Don't test him. Don't test the Lord. He is abounding in loving kindness. He is patient toward us. But he will not simply excuse our living in patterns of unrepentant known sin, right? I'm speaking to those of you especially who've been the recipients of so much truth, so much exposure to the glories of Christ. You've been keenly aware of his sacrifice for you on the cross. That Jesus came and and died on the cross to pay for sin so that believing in him we might be forgiven that we might be restored to our maker, that we might receive eternal life. You're well aware of that. And yet you love your sin. And you will not repent. You love your independence. You love your autonomy. You want to rule your own life. So you continually, continually, continually shut the door of your heart to Christ. C.H. Spurgeon says, there are many, there are many today who choose to spend eternity in hell because they choose to not put their trust in Christ. How true that is, isn't it? How true that is. These men fell into that category. They had had so much exposure to the Lord's word, so much exposure to his amazing power and authority through his miracles. They've seen it. They've heard of it from the crowds and the multitudes for three plus years now. And even now they are hearing the amazing teaching of Jesus in the temple and they will not believe they are autonomous individuals. They want to rule themselves. They don't want to submit to the rule of Christ. Listen, there's a lesson for us as Christians as well, isn't there? There's a lesson for us as Christians. For us who put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I ask you this morning, beloved? Do we acknowledge Jesus' authority in the way that we think and live? Do we live each day mindful of the unrivaled authority of Jesus in the way that we think and live? Because for so many of us, so often we live so defeated. We think and live so defeated. As if we are spiritual beggars rather than spiritual victors in Christ. Even in the midst of these difficult times that, are, that we're in. We often live as if, as if, wow, the world is going down the drain, man. There's nothing good to praise God for. What about every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ? Ephesians 1 believer. What about the fact that 2 Peter 1, God has given you everything that pertains to life and godliness? What about the the amazing spiritual blessings that we have in Jesus? That God has given us Christ's righteousness. That our souls are secure. See, oftentimes we don't contemplate those things. And so, what does it mean to live in the light of the unrivaled authority of Jesus? I want to put some meat to this, okay? Here are six implications of Christ's rule. All right, and we're going to go through these fast. First, living in the light of the unrivaled authority of Christ means that you submit to the Word of God. 
that you strive by the grace of God to submit to God's word, to obey God's word, that the Bible, what God says, is final in the way that you think and in the way that you live. Friend, don't give lip service to God's word being important to you, and yet you are right now perpetually adopting the world's thinking on politics, on social issues, on so many ideologies that are out there right now. Don't give lip service to the fact that God's word is final for you. Don't do that. You're deceiving yourself. Be honest. Are you really taking those things through the grid of the word of God? Again, this is prime time for us to take worldly ideologies and ask the supreme question, how does this line of thinking, how does this thinking fortress match up with what God says in his authoritative final word? If Jesus rules, do you submit to his word? Do you submit to his final word? Second, to live in the light of the unrivaled authority of Christ means that in your sanctification, you submit every area of your life to Christ. Every area of your life to Christ. In other words, you're addressing sin in your life. You don't know how many people I've spoken to outside of this body, okay? Outside of this body, who... Even during COVID, this has been one of the hardest times for them with secret sin. With hidden sin that they're aware of that they need to repent of, but they've coddled it. They're isolated, obviously, and that does not help at all. Sin grows in isolation, doesn't it? But they've coddled sin. Listen, if you're going to submit every area of your life to Christ by the grace of God, are you seeking to be like Jesus in the way that you give up those secret sins? What is that sin this morning? for you. I want you to just take a few seconds right now before the Lord. Nobody's going to ask you to confess publicly right now. But what is that secret sin, that secret destructive sin in your life that you are coddling, that you are living under, that is slowly and imperceptibly eating away at your spiritual well-being, that is keeping you from greater intimacy with Christ because you won't give it up. You don't want to give it up. What is that sin right now? God wants all of your heart. He wants that area of your life. You can't pretend to have devotion before the Lord, to submit to his unrivaled authority that he's your Lord and he's your Savior, and yet you want to live under that sin. And it isn't healthy for you, beloved. As your pastor, it isn't spiritually healthy. You're not going to thrive spiritually living under secret sin. Bring it out. Confess it to the Lord first. And then to somebody who you know loves you and cares for you. To another Christian who can help you. Sin grows in isolation. We need to expose it. We need to take a spiritual flashlight, the flashlight of the Word of God, and light that flashlight on that sin. Confess it to the Lord. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. He's faithful. When you come to the foot of the cross and say, Lord, I am reminded again that you've died for these sins and you've died not only to deliver me from the punishment of our sin, but so that I don't live under the power of this particular sin. Beloved, confess it. Let it go. Jesus rules, which means that every area of your life, by his grace and in the power of the Spirit of God, he has given you the power to overcome. If you're living under sin and known unrepentant sin, listen, it's because you're choosing to do that. You're not submitting to the rulership of Christ. Third, living in the light of his authority has implications for your participation in the church. Your participation in the church. Jesus loves his church and works out his will through his church. He says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Are you connected to the church? Are you connected to other people? Have you positioned yourself to be invested into and to invest yourself into others? Are you actively serving by using your spiritual gifts, your abilities, your money, your resources to build up God's church? Jesus rules. And one of the primary ways that he does this, and it's shown here on earth, is in the fact that he's building his church one soul at a time. 
Are you submitting to the rulership of Christ, to his sovereign control over your life by being connected to the local church? The one entity that he has promised that will never be destroyed in this world, right? His church, his people, his redeemed ones. Four, living in the light of his authority means that we obey the great commission and make disciples. Living in the light of the fact that Jesus rules means that we obey his call to make disciples. What did Jesus say in Matthew 28, verses 16 and following? All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Therefore, what? Go and make disciples. That is our mission, brothers and sisters. I'm amazed at how many of us haven't shared the gospel with one person in the last year. Listen, that's what, those are the orders that Christ left for us as his followers. And he didn't only give us a command, he also gave us the message of the gospel. When we share the message, we do so boldly with the authority of Christ that the gospel carries, right? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the what? The power of God. The gospel has power. Do you believe that? Do you believe this morning that the, that the gospel has power to transform a heart? I really believe that that is at the heart of why some of us are not sharing the gospel with people. It's not just fear. It's not just inadequacy. We really don't believe that God can use the gospel to transform a human heart. And yet all we have to do is just go look in the mirror to see an example of that, right? I've seen moralists saved from realizing that their moralism wasn't what gained them favor before God. And they repented of their moralism. And they came, they asked for the, they pleaded with God for Christ's righteousness to be given to them. I've seen this happen in people's lives. I've witnessed it. I've heard the testimony of staunch atheists who for 30 plus years suppressed the truth of God in their unrighteousness. And bam, one day they had a collision with Jesus and he transformed them. The power of the gospel can change a human heart. Do you believe that Jesus rules through his gospel? Are you sharing it? Are you cultivating relationships with other people so that you might be positioned to be able to share Christ with them? Fifth, living in the light of Christ's authority means that we, by God's grace, act with courage. That we act with courage, beloved. Remember what God said to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1? Joshua, only be strong and courageous. Why? Because Joshua, you're such a gifted individual. You have such great abilities. You're such a great general, Joshua. No. He said, be strong and courageous. Why? Because I am with you. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you, right? The power was in God. Be courageous, he said to Joshua. Remember back in Mark chapter 6, verse 50, when the disciples are on the boat in the midst of a great storm and Jesus comes to them in the middle of the night walking on the water. Do you remember what Jesus said to them? Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them and the wind stopped and they were utterly astonished. What power. What authority, beloved. And the Lord Jesus Christ. And the lesson is this. When Jesus is in the boat, we need not be afraid, right? When the one with unrivaled authority is with us and we are in him, in union with Christ, we put our trust in him. We don't need to tremble or fear. Come what may come in this world. Which leads us to our sixth point. So finally... To live in the light of the unrivaled authority of Christ means that we rest in Him. If Jesus rules, we rest in Him. Let me ask you, is there a, any higher power or authority than Jesus in this country? Yes or no? No. Is there any higher authority or power than Jesus as far as world rulers go? No. Jesus rules. It's only a matter of time before he returns to deliver the final death blow. He rules. 
Thus we can rest in Him. We can experience joy and and peace in Him. He takes care of us. He loves us. He's our great shepherd, isn't He? Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. You are with me. Listen, if you've submitted your life to Jesus, who rules, then your soul is secure in Him who is the lover of your soul. Amen? Romans 8.38 is a comforting reminder for us as we close. Listen to this. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father God, oh Lord, thank you. Thank you that you have not left us here in this world hopeless and despairing. Thank you for your grace in Christ. Thank you for Christ who rules and reigns. And Lord, there is a purpose. There is a purpose right now as to why he hasn't returned. Lord, one day we will know, but we long for his return. And yet in the meantime, Father, help us to be people on mission. Help us to be people who are sharing Christ. Help us to have compassion. Help us to be people of conviction. Help us to be people who put our beliefs from your word and about Christ and the gospel into practice each and every day, Lord, by your grace and in the power of your spirit. Father, help us to live in the light of the fact that Jesus rules even in our homes, but extending out into the world, into our workplaces, into everything we do by your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.